for me. Uh, yesterday we had the school carnival uh, for Paradise Valley Christian School, and that is a ministry here at um, this church where we're educating for eternity, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who participated, who volunteered their time to decorate, manage booths, handle the auction, donate items. Uh, there was a lot of work involved, and I, I think it was a great success. Um, so this morning, I just want to thank you for all your hard work, and as we imagine more, let's imagine more for that ministry as well, that it can grow. As an alumni, it means a lot to me. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day of worship. Thank you that we can come and break bread together, proclaim the death of your son. We can celebrate his mighty work in our lives. I pray that we can seek knowledge of you and grow in understanding and give us that wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this series, we're working through the book of Ephesians um, and the, the tagline for the series is being the church. And Larry asked me to this week talk about being the church that prays for others. Now, I'd like, on that note, to leave you with some actionables, some take-homes, some ways that you can get started easily praying for others. And we're going to get into how we can pray for others. Um, but these are things you can pick up in the lobby. Um, I want to plug uh, this prayer guide. Um, it's the Muslim World Prayer Guide, 30 Days of Prayer. It starts tomorrow, so this is a perfect time to pick one of these up if there's no more left um, after first service. Um, you can go to their website and find out more. This is praying through different Muslim nations and the needs that they have uh, for the gospel. Um, Amber Berlin, one of our missionaries in Bosnia, contacted me actually this morning to see if we could get an announcement uh, for that. She also asked uh, that you consider uh, praying for Bosnia in particular. That is where she's at. And uh, you can pick up one of these cards in the lobby and sign up. There's an email a list that you can become a part of. You'll get regular emails every week uh, with prayer requests and things that you can pray about. And then uh, there's also a 2019 Prayer Warrior Commitment Form. Um, you can find the details on this page. These are due in today. Um, if you would like to be part of the Prayer Warrior team here at Paradise Valley Christian Church, fill out one of these and jump in. And lastly, Jeannie Boyd asked me to plug. They have a from 8.30 to 9, a prayer group uh, that meets in the library back here if you want to participate in that. So keep these in mind uh, as you leave today. This is, there's opportunities to pray for others in the world around us. This morning we're going to be covering Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. If you were here last week, you heard Larry talk about the really long sentence, verses 13. Uh, 3 through 14 were one long thought in the Greek. And this is the second long sentence of the book. All verse
verses, 15 through 23, in Greek is one idea, one thought that Paul pours out. Um, according to Greek scholars, this is a really elegant sentence, um, but I cannot vouch for that because it's all Greek to me. So you're, you're stuck with me reading the English, and we'll have to take their word for it. Um, I'm going to read through from beginning to end, um, and then we'll break it down verse by verse, because I think that helps a lot. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I want to do a little history lesson on Ephesus. You can read about Paul's journeys to Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19. Uh, he spent about three years there. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on. Uh, I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'd encourage you during this series to go back and, and read the things that occurred there in Acts. Ephesus was a technologically advanced city for the time. They had the most complex and advanced aqueduct system, their plumbing, in all the world, even better than Rome. They, are, they were also known to be extremely religious. Here you can see the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Everyone in that region, everyone around the world knew about this temple. And it was called, they, the, the Ephesians called themselves the city of Artemis. They, they had pride in that title. They were also deep into the cult. As Paul developed his ministry there, on one day, when all of the people con converted, brought their spell books and their, their magic scrolls, and they all burned them, it was said to be worth over $6 million. There's a great theater there that held 25,000 people. And this is what it looks like today. You can go there and visit it. Here, Paul was confronted by the Silversmith Guild. These guys created 
idols and statues. They created recreations of the temples. They created little altars, and they would sell them to the people, and they made a lot of money. And Paul's influence and those of the Christians there cut into their business. And so in this great amphitheater, they brought Paul before them and they shouted, Artemis, Artemis, and tried to get him run out of the city. Ephesus was a hub of Asia. And I want, as we go through this series and end this sermon, just keep this in mind. These are real people. This is a real place. And it's not that far off from our culture today. So let's go back to Ephesians, starting with that first verse, number 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul starts off here with, for this reason. For what reason? And in some of your translations may say, therefore. And then those are key phrases, meaning what came before that means something in, in context to this. Uh, you may remember la- last week when Larry covered verses 1 through 14. And Paul talked about the believers and how they were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge for our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. When Paul hears about the faith of the church and their love, he celebrates the glory of God demonstrated through his spirit. And this isn't the only time he's used this type of phrase in his letters. Romans 1.8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Philippians 1.3-4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. As is only fitting. Paul had a big prayer list. This is a lot of people, many of them he hasn't met. The, the book of Ephesians may have been written to people he had never interacted with. He wrote it from a prison in Rome. Are you thankful for the saints? around you. I tell you, when I read this, generally I I read these books and I pass through these passages really quickly. It tends to come with the greeting and you're just kind of like, well, it's, you know, to these guys or it's to this guy he knows and there's usually some weird name that we can't pronounce and you're just, I don't know who that is. Let's just get to the meat. But here's Paul saying, as is only fitting, He gives thanks to God for the working of the Holy Spirit around the world. Are we thankful? I say, I take you for granted. 
all the time. I take the work of God in this church for granted. How he's using the people around me to spread the gospel. Immediately after, he says he thinks, gives thanks and that he's mentioning them in his prayers. Paul in verse 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It's not just giving thanks, he's asking for something on their behalf. How many of you, if you went to the doctor and he said, yeah, I passed my boards 20 years ago, but I haven't really kept up with things since then, would you feel comfortable being there? I wouldn't. How about my day job? I'm a computer programmer. I build things like websites and, and, and things like that. I'm sure all of you can relate to the idea that the world is changing so fast and technology is changing so fast and we, we've got cell phones and there's always different apps or there's different social media things that we need to be using. And if you're a business person, you might be hearing things all over you. Well, you need to get over here and get your audience over here and grow it or... Um, I mean, sometimes maybe you're just trying to keep up with your kids and know what they're doing, and it, it seems an impossible task. Well, on my end, it's twice as bad because it seems like all of the people that have my job are rushing to be the first ones to do all of those things. So constantly every day we're developing new libraries or there's a new technical specs that we have to review. If I didn't keep up with that, my job would be impossible to perform. I would be a dinosaur the next day, it seems like. How many of you in your relationship with a spouse or, or a friend, if they told you, well, we got married, I think that's it, we're covered, no, we don't need to go out on any more dates, we don't need to spend time with one another, we don't need to talk, I mean, as long as you're there making food or as long as you're going to work or, you know, do your laundry and we're good, we're good. A, a relationship can't be built on that, it can't be built unless we are growing in the knowledge of each other. And here Paul is wishing for God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in that knowledge of him. He wants them to grow. He doesn't want them to stagnate. He wants them to develop that love and faith that he talks about. He wants those to grow, to flourish. And as the first part of that, in verse 18, he says, I pray that, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Now, hope is a big word. That's little. What does our culture know of hope? You may recall that famous line by Nietzsche written over 100 years ago. God is dead. You see, back then he judged the consequences of the age of enlightenment, that the rise of philosophical materialism and naturalism, that for him it had displaced the need for belief in God. And as a result of that, he feared nihilism would become rampant across the world. What would people have to live for without meaning, any meaning in their life? And as our postmodern world bears forth the fruit of these ideas over a century later, 
perhaps he was right on just that last point. Our universities teach that truth is relative. There is no objective or universally applicable truth. It's all subjective. Popular media banters this quaintly with phrases such as UBU. There's no moral standard. Just do your thing. It's just your authenticity, your self-actualization, and your self-justification. That's all you need. Yet, our society is dumbfounded when 14-year-old girls are arrested for plotting the murder of their classmates. Or when suicide bombers blow up hotels and churches. A new study by the CDC last December revealed that the suicide rates in America are at their highest point in 50 years. We have a crisis of hope and meaning in the world today. The world is missing the one true hope. They need the gospel of our Savior. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We serve the God of hope. And there's only this way that we can abound in hope ourselves. One of my favorite verses on hope is Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We as Christians have a hope. I love that word picture, an anchor for the soul. That's a hope that isn't rushed down the river. It's not torn apart in storms. The anchor holds fast. It's steadfast. Paul prays that the church will know this hope. I also love the phrase that he uses here, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in verse 18. Now, we tend to associate the heart with emotions in our world today. It's just how we express. You know, you love someone with your heart. You give them your heart. It's this emotional thing. Your heart cries out. Um, at this time, though, when Paul is writing that, the seed of the emotions are actually in the bowels. Okay? That's, that's the seed of the emotions. And we have a few idioms hanging around that are a little similar. So you might have heard someone say it was gut-wrenching or my stomach dropped. You know, and they're expressing maybe surprise or grief. They're expressing a strong emotion. And that is the way that they expressed emotions is you would talk about your liver or, or something like that. This use of the heart here is dealing with the mind. It's dealing with knowledge, knowing at your innermost being. He says your heart will be illuminated. See this hope at the innermost of your being. And the hope shines on his calling. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This is a hope that calls you out of darkness in a place, in a land where there is no hope to become God's possession. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who, might li who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is calling to a new life. This is a hope that leads to becoming a new creation. It's a calling to be righteous. It's a calling to be ambassadors for the word of reconciliation. Romans 12, 10 through 13 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. It's a to-do list, a different sort of to-do list. Only when we rejoice in the hope can we do it. In the next verse in Ephesians 1, 18, he continues with the second thing that he would like us to know. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, inheritance in the saints? We see the hope of our calling, and then he matches that up with the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. Larry talked a little bit about inheritance last week. We're the adopted sons of God. What did God do for us? John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is a crazy kind of love. Romans 5, 7 through 11 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, 
having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Once we've been reconciled, we see the riches of being saved by his life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our hope and salvation. And we have no idea all that God has prepared for us. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. It's unimaginable. The third thing that Paul wanted to share in this knowledge of God, that starts in verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This last item is power, hope, riches, and power. Paul uses four different Greek words for power in verse 19 alone. He wants to emphasize the power of God. Colossians 1.29 says, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which works, which mightily works within me. This is the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. The power that conquered sin and death, that set the captives free, that is the power that transforms your life as a Christian. There's some people that say that folks can't change. Across the gospel, we see a message of change. In this church, the people around you, they are witnesses and testimonies to change. God has changed our lives as Christians. Just as he raised Christ from the dead. At the right hand of God in the heavenly places, he is not only above, but far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In a few weeks as we move through Ephesians, we'll get to chapter 6 in the armor of God. And there it is revealed that these rulers and authorities that he foreshadows here are not flesh and blood. They're spiritual But this power has placed Christ above angels and demons and the powers of this world that hold the world in bondage. What did that mean to a people in a city ruled by the temple of Artemis? Remember all those spell books and 
and magic books, six million dollars worth. And that was just the people that converted. What did it mean to be in a region that is the epitome of bondage to the spiritual of that time? The power of God has raised Jesus above those domains. What rulers and authorities and powers and dominions is our culture slave to? Many of the same, if we're honest. We worship ourselves. We worship sex and drugs. We worship political power. We worship celebrity. The postmodern culture has no story of forgiveness or redemption. When everyone is their own master, all are slaves. And there's no hope for change. The gospel message is wholly contrary to this worldview. In Matthew 5, 43, Jesus challenges the disciples and those around him when he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How can we love our enemies? How do we pray for those who persecute us? How do you do that? There's maybe some head knowledge there. You could say, well, you know, that's what Jesus says we're supposed to do, so I guess we're going to do it. And I say that unless you understand the hope of your calling, unless you understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance, And unless you're empowered by that great power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's impossible. You don't get to loving your enemies through our culture's worldview. You don't get to praying for those who persecute you. No, they, the natural thing is to lash out. Like get revenge. Ostracize. This is a different sort of story. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5.14 again. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When we get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 18, Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We close this chapter out, starting with verse 22. And he put all things in subjugation under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the only way we can do it. It's the only way we can live no longer for ourselves, but for him. I want to close with John 15, 7, where Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Let's stand. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation.